Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Austin Drake. Last week, Austin and I began the first part of this two-part God Solution episode series where we are replaying Dr. Craig Evans's presentation from the Engage Conference. The focus of this has been archaeology. I'm sure that you were encouraged by what Dr. Evans had to share last week, and I know you're going to be encouraged by the second part of the presentation this week. And if you missed last week's show, which was the first half of Dr. Evans' presentation, you can get it at godsolutionshow.com. Absolutely. Well, right now we're going to come back to Dr. Evans speaking on archaeological evidence for the Bible at the Engage Conference in March here in Albuquerque at Hoffmantown Church. Without any further ado, here's Dr. Evans. Look at the ossuaries that we have found. The bone box. A bone box is designed for the human skeleton. It's taken apart, or what we say, disarticulated. We have found on these ossuaries the names of some of the high priests. Most celebrated is the one that has the name of Joseph Bar Caiapha, better known as Caiaphas, beautiful, ornate uh, uh, ossuary. Uh, And some have said, well, uh, how do we know that uh, the body of Jesus was actually taken down and placed in a tomb? Remember that theory some years ago? Jesus is left hanging on a cross. Uh, The dogs perhaps chewed up his body. Maybe he was never buried. And if he was never buried, then the gospel story of finding an empty tomb can't be true because there was no tomb at all, at least no tomb anybody knew about, no tomb that anybody could visit uh, that Sunday morning. Well, what did we find with the Caiaphas ossuary? We found two crucifixion names. Now, it had nothing to do with Caiaphas or his family. They were elite people. They would be immune from such a fate. But we have learned, you know, from these iron nails, there's human calcium attached to them. And what that shows is lots of people who were crucified were properly buried. And I know this sounds strange to us modern, but crucifixion nails were highly prized they were talismans. They were they were like a lucky rabbit's foot, we might say. And you'd want to have a crucifixion nail. and You'd place it in somebody's tomb, and it brought good luck and protection for the afterlife. So here is somebody who used to be the high priest for many years, Caiaphas, and he's buried with what? Two crucifixion nails? How strange. Well, 140 iron nails have been recovered from tombs. Now we're beginning to figure out why iron nails have been placed in tombs. They're good luck. But more importantly, we're finding that these iron nails were used in crucifixion and remained with the bones of the crucified people long enough that they acquired calcium deposits. And what all of this shows is crucified people, like Jesus of Nazareth, were in fact taken down from cross and placed in tombs, exactly as the four Gospels in the New Testament say. 
So this idea that the Gospels are making up the story, that Jesus wasn't probably buried at all, but probably left hanging on the cross, and Bart Ehrman not too many years ago suggested that, there is no support for that idea at all. And the archaeological evidence, in fact, contradicts it. So this is what I'm talking about. This kind of uh, archaeological evidence again and again shows that the gospel writers know what they're talking about. But it's not just archaeology as such, finding stones and glass and iron and bones and so forth, but the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's an archaeological discovery in a sense because the scrolls were found in caves. Some of them evidently were found in ceramic jars. And we all have heard about the 11 caves found near the Dead Sea beginning in 1947. My doctoral father, William Brownlee, was in fact in Israel in 1947-48. He and his friend John Trevor were there for different reasons. They had different study projects in mind, but the scrolls came to light. They photographed them and began to study them. Their lives academically were changed forever. It was my good fortune to study in 1977 until I finished my Ph.D., to study with William Brownlee. Well, the scrolls changed a lot. The scrolls showed that the biblical text, what we call the Old Testament, was in fact well-established and stable, that the Old Testament text we have today is not crazily different or somehow is mutated and evolved into something else, but it's the text of the time of Jesus. The great Isaiah scroll dates back perhaps as early as 200 B.C., some skeptics wondered if Isaiah 53 really was in the original book of Isaiah because it describes a suffering servant and the prophecy of Isaiah 53 matches the experience of Jesus so closely that there were some skeptics who believed that Jesus, that Christians wrote Isaiah 53, if you can believe that. And I could tell you a lot of really interesting stories about skeptics who said, no, no, you can't fool me. Uh, this is talking about Jesus, and somebody must have written this in the first or second centuries A.D. Well, then the great Isaiah scroll is discovered, and it dates between 150 and 200 B.C. And Isaiah 53 is there, talking about the servant of God who suffered on behalf of his people. So the Dead Sea Scrolls establish not only the stability and reliable reliability, of the Hebrew text, what we call the Old Testament, but also the Dead Sea Scrolls shed light on the world of Jesus and, in fact, confirm aspects of his teaching. And skeptics at one time argued uh, perhaps was not authentically Jewish, not available in Hebrew or Aramaic, but perhaps was an idea from a later time as Christianity spread throughout the Greek-speaking world and, and engaged the Greco-Roman cult of the divine emperor. <clears throat> Maybe that's where early Christians got the idea that Jesus is the son of God, just like Caesar is called the son of God. And so we end up with an exalted Christology that never really occurred to Jesus or his original apostles, but occurred only to Christians a few decades later as Christianity spread throughout the Greek-speaking world of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Well, I'm afraid the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't help that theory at all. Uh, one of the Aramaic texts found in Cave 4 
It's document number 246. It's called Son of God text. All we have, just one piece of leather with two columns of Aramaic, nine lines in each column. It talks about somebody who will come, the son uh, in a royal line, who will be called Son of God, Son of the Most High, who will reign forever, and he will be called Great. And when you hear that, you think, wait a minute, I think I've heard that before. And you have. If you've ever read Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, you most certainly have heard it before. These are the very words of Gabriel in the Annunciation. And he told Mary that she would give birth to a son, and he would be called Son of God, Son of the Most High, that he would be great, and that he would reign forever. And that's in Luke 1, 32 to 38, and you can read it yourself. And there it is, written in the first century A.D., and sure, skeptics were saying, that can't possibly be authentic. That can't go back to the turn of the era, to an Aramaic-speaking woman, the mother of Jesus, this is language that comes out of the Greek and Roman cult of the divine emperor called Son of God. Well, sorry, 4Q246 was found in Palestine in, Q in Qumran's cave number four. It's written in the Aramaic language. That's the mother tongue of Mary and Jesus. And it dates to about 50 BC, not 50 AD, 50 BC. So this language was being used a generation before Jesus's birth. It was talking about the very thing, the hopes and aspirations of Jewish people, that God would someday raise up from the royal line of David a Messiah who would be called the Son of God, who would reign forever and be great. And that's what the angel tells Mary. Let me give you another example. Uh, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we have a story about John the Baptist. He's in prison. Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, has locked him up. He doesn't like the kind of things that John the Baptist is saying. He's talking about how the nation needs to repent, and above all, King Herod needs to repent too. He's adulterous. He's now taken up in an affair with his sister-in-law, Herodias, and that's the last straw. He's in prison, and we all know the story eventually he will be executed. He will be beheaded. Well, while in prison, John is discouraged. He's wondering why Jesus doesn't, in effect, break open the prison and rescue him. So he sends a couple of messengers to Jesus, and they ask him, are you he who is to come, or should we wait for somebody else? And you can read it. It's in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. Now, what's really interesting is Matthew introduces it by saying that when John was in prison, he heard about the deeds or the works of the Messiah. Luke doesn't introduce the story that way, but the actual wording of Jesus remains the same, <clears throat> where Jesus says to the messengers, go back and tell John what you're hearing and seeing, that the blind receive their sight, the lame can walk, the dead are raised up, lepers are cleansed, and the poor have good news preached to them. Well, some skeptics said, isn't it interesting that Matthew turns it into Christology? Matthew makes it in reference to Messiah. That You don't find that in Luke. So this is probably a Christological upgrading of this story. But then we find at Qumran, also in Cave 4, document 521, 
a text that talks about what will happen when the Messiah comes. The text goes on to say, in the same kind of language, that the blind will regain their sight, that the uh, dead will be raised up, the sick will be healed, and the poor will have good news preached to them. Scholars immediately saw the parallels between Jesus' reply to John and this newly published text, 4Q, that is Qumran Q4, document 521. Some call it the Messianic Apocalypse. It was astonishing. But what's interesting is 4Q521 begins with the words, His Messiah, whom heaven and earth will obey. It is a Messianic text. So the evangelist Matthew introducing Jesus' reply to John by saying that John was in prison and heard about the works or the deeds of the Messiah, Matthew got it right. Matthew understood correctly that Jesus' reply was messianic. Matthew, I'm sure, didn't see this scroll from He didn't need to. This was in the air. This is what people expected, that when the Messiah came, things like this would happen. The blind would regain their sight. The sick would be healed, even dead raised up, lepers cleansed, and the poor would finally receive good news in fulfillment of Isaiah 61. But what's even more astonishing about 4Q521 is not only does it say heaven and earth will obey his Messiah, it goes on to include words and phrases that come out of the book of Psalm 146 where it talks about how heaven and earth, God has made heaven and earth and everything in it. And it is God, Yahweh, who restores the sight to the blind. It's Yahweh who raises up the sick and the lame, raises up the dead and proclaims the good news. And yet, according to Jesus, Jesus is doing that. And so not only is the passage messianic, Jesus' reply to John, but it's a very exalted Christology. It is an implied divinity. The Jesus, in fact, is acting as God. The very Christian teaching of incarnation, God in the flesh. And so the Qumran text not only supported what Matthew was saying, but ended up supporting Christian theology. The whole idea that Jesus, the Messiah, isn't simply an anointed warrior, a Messiah who, like David, will attack and kill Gentiles, perhaps defeat Rome or something like that. And by the way, the men of Qumran hoped for that, and there are texts at Qumran that speak of that. But 4Q521 implied that the Lord's anointed would in some sense act as God himself and do the deeds, not just the deeds of the Messiah, but the works or deeds of Yahweh. So 4Q521 is a huge text of great significance. Scholars are still talking about it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. We're listening to the presentation. We're listening to a presentation that Dr. Craig Evans did at the Engage conference back in March. There are other texts at Qumran that lend to this too. One text from Qumran Cave 1, 
which is called 1QSA. It's Appendix A to the Rule Scroll. It's called S because S is the first letter in Sarek, means rule. In 1QSA, column 2, lines 11 to 12, it talks about when the great messianic feast will finally take place, when God will have begotten the Messiah. And it's using the very language from Psalm 2, verses 2 and 7. Psalm 2, 2 speaks of the Messiah against whom the nations rage. And verse 7, where God declares, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so these two verses from this very important psalm are alluded to in 1QS column 2. In other words, the men of Qumran expected God someday to beget, to bring about the existence of his own son. And 4Q521 says, will act with the very authority of Yahweh himself and perform wonders, miracles, never before seen. And that's what happens in the ministry of Jesus. So I could cite many more examples from Qumran that show us over and over and over again that what the Gospels are talking about reflects the reality of the early first century, not the fantasy, not fiction of a later time, as the second and third century Gospels do. These later Gospels, Gnostic Gospels, heretical Gospels, they don't reflect the verisimilitude, the reality of Jesus' world at the beginning of the first century. But let me go back to some other archaeological discoveries. One of the things that we have discovered, of course, working for the last 100 years in and around Jerusalem is the discovery of more than 800 tomb complexes, uh, three or 4,000 bone ossuaries, bone boxes, have been recovered. Uh, several thousand skeletons or parts of skeletons have been recovered, many of them studied. And we have learned some things that are really shocking. We have learned that lots of people had ill health. For example, in a third generation tomb, we might recover as many as 70 skeletons, all belonging to the same family a third-generation, three-generation family tomb. And what is shocking is fewer than one-third of the skeletons were of people who reached maturity. Can you imagine that today? Imagine your extended family. Think of your grandparents, your parents, yourselves, your children, and only one-third even made it to the age of 18. Because by the time you got to 18, you were considered a full-grown adult. Only a third made it past infancy or childhood. And it's from statistics like this that we deduce that on any given day in the time of Jesus, about one quarter of the population was ill or injured or in some ways in need of medical help. And then you read the Gospels and what do you read? Everywhere Jesus went, crowds followed him. Sometimes it was so bad, Jesus couldn't even teach. People were pulling at his clothes. On one occasion, he has to get into a boat, and they pushed the boat from the shore. So Jesus could teach the people on land and could teach them without being, uh, you know, mobbed, without having people trying to pull at his clothes or touch him. Now we understand why. 
there would be lots of people who were ill, injured, and in need of help. And so the stories we read in the Gospels take on a whole new meaning. People tearing up part of a roof of a house to lower a paralyzed friend through the roof. Why? They can't get in the house. You know, they have to wait their turn, but it's an emergency. They can't wait. People are crammed in the house. The doorways are jammed. People are even in the windows. And so they calculate where Jesus must be inside. They lift up some of the roof. And by the way, we understand how the homes were built, so we know how this could happen. And the person is lowered down through the roof into the presence of Jesus. Another example, uh, thanks to archaeology and thanks to the ancient literatures that have been recovered from the past, we understand comments like these. When Jesus heals someone or casts out an evil spirit, and people say, wow, we've never seen anything like this. This is extraordinary. People are astonished. Well, <clears throat> thanks to discoveries, we know why they say this. What we have found are old magical texts, old descriptions of what exorcists and healers used to do. They had all kinds of rigmarole. They had charms and incantations, magic stones. Uh, they had the baras which they would burn, that gave off a smoke that supposedly would pull the evil spirit out through the nose. They had, of course, all kinds of rigmarole, powerful symbols on their clothing, and so forth. Then they would go through these incantations and charms. They would say things. They would invoke one deity after another. They would speak in the name of Solomon or in the name of some other Old Testament worthy. But Jesus did none of those things. Jesus would simply say, I command you, depart. The evil spirit departed. Jesus would simply say to a sick person, be well, or stand up, be opened. He would say to the eyes of a blind man, or you, you, know, you could speak, you could now hear, and so forth. And people had never seen anything like it. And that's why Jesus drew huge crowds. If there was no truth to Jesus' healing power, why would crowds follow him? If crowds did not follow him, why would the authorities of Jerusalem even care about him? Why would he have attracted any negative attention at all? If Jesus had no power, if he healed no one, if all he did was wander around and tell people to pray for their enemies or turn the other cheek, if all Jesus did was tell parables and urge people to be nice to one another, why would the authorities care? But Jesus instead healed people. He healed people as proof that his talk about the kingdom of God was legitimate, that the kingdom of God really was breaking into human society in his ministry. Dr. Evans, I don't mean to interrupt you. Uh, the truth of his message... And the fact that the healings took place counts for why there were large crowds of enthusiastic people pressing about him all the time. And it was these crowds pressing about him enthusiastically, calling for the destruction of the Roman Empire, calling for the overthrow of a corrupt ruling priesthood, you know, like Caiaphas. That's what made the ruling priests very nervous. That's why they were able to persuade 
Governor Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, that Jesus really was a menace and ought to be put to death. So you can see how archaeological discoveries, including manuscript discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls, begin to put the whole picture together. And we realize again and again, the gospel writers know what they're talking about. This is not, this is not myth. This is just legend and rumor that grew up in the passage of time. But rather, the gospels reflect the things that really happened. If they did not reflect the realities, then why would archaeology support it? So these things go hand in hand. Bart Ehrman is somebody I know, and I regard him as a friend, but he and I don't agree on this. I'm referring to his book, Misquoting Jesus, and some of his other publications. Now, he has suggested in his uh, public uh, statements that, uh, <clears throat> that perhaps the Gospels are not faithfully transmitted, that there have been all kinds of changes in the Gospels, that the very words of Jesus were not perhaps recorded correctly, and there were some deliberate changes. Well, I really have to challenge that. If the text had been radically changed, then Gospels would not enjoy the verisimilitude that they exhibit. They would enjoy the support from archaeology that I've been talking about. And as far as the transmission of the text is concerned, we have very early copies of manuscripts. I have seen them all. Last June, I, was, uh, I did a tour with uh, Logos Bible Software, Faith Life. We made a documentary, which, by the way, will release uh, theatrically uh, in a few months. It's called Fragments of Truth. So we looked at the oldest fragments of the Greek New Testament. We went to Dublin, Ireland, at the Chester Beatty Museum. We looked at P45, Papyrus 45. It contains chunks, substantial chunks, of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. I'll just wrap this up with a comment that we looked at all the manuscripts, and uh, they're excellent. They're written by professional scribes, and many of them, by the way, were secular professional scribes who had no motivation at all to make changes. So this idea that who knows you know, if the text is the same as when originally written, there is no reason to have that doubt at all. I hope you enjoyed this replay of Dr. Craig Evans' presentation on the archaeological evidence for the Bible. This was at the Engage conference at Hoffmantown a couple months ago. It was a great conference. We'll have more things like that coming up, so definitely stay tuned for that. But right now, we kind of we come to the historical and archaeological reliability of Scripture, and that's important. If you're listening to this and you're wondering what to do next, know that God loves you and that we are separated from him because of our sin. But Jesus provided a way by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. And we have a decision from here to believe in him and receive that gift of eternal salvation and walking with him in our life. The evidence says this is true. Why would we wait another day to experience the new life and eternal life that Christ promises? If you want to take that step today to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, I want to ask you right now to do something bold. You could pray right now. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. And the Bible tells us that if you take that step 
to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you will be saved, and you can look forward to a life of meaning and purpose on this planet and an eternity with God in heaven. Austin, has uh, Jesus changed your life? Did you experience that? Oh, so much transformation. You know, I went from being an atheist and agnostic at times uh, to totally being transformed just because somebody had the willingness to come and show me the love of God. You know, that's important too. If you already know the Lord, there are people just like Austin used to be that need to hear the gospel. And as you listen to this show, you hear a lot of evidence. I really pray that it doesn't just stay in your brain but that you find a way to share this with other people. There's a whole world that needs to hear the evidence for the gospel. So please share the gospel and the evidence for it with your friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, people that you encounter on a regular basis. I'm so glad that you're tuned in, and I hope that you'll continue sharing the show with your friends. You can go to godsolutionshow.com to get all of our past shows and definitely let people know about it. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And I really mean that. The evidence is so solid for our faith. Please, please, please share that with those that you love. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.